0: Hi, my name is Mark Carter. Hello. We're reading from Colossians chapter 1 and we pick it up partway through. The ESV has this reading, all one sentence. So we pick it up. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light.
1: Thank you, Mark. Let's pray. Lord, it's such a um, short prayer but such a potent prayer. Uh, sometimes Lord I think we say a lot of words in our prayers and we don't get down to what really matters. Lord would you would you teach us uh, through Paul's prayer here how to pray more effectively and that our prayer lives would be injected with uh, Just just being a little bit more on target with your heart. And so speak to each and every one of us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Last week, we launched our new series called The Supremacy of Christ. And so for the next few months, we'll be uh, going through Paul's letter to the Colossians, uh, verse by verse. And uh, the theme of the letter is The Supremacy of Christ, hence the title so who or what controls the universe anyway? Uh, is it random chance that's in control? Uh, sort of a self-defeating you know, phrase. Um, is it luck? Is it the stars and their alignment? Is the universe controlling the universe? That's kind of a popular idea. More and more, I hear people saying, whether it's an award show on TV. Oh, I thank the universe for you know, and it is, I looked at an article on this uh, this week Four easy ways to let go and trust the universe. <laughs> and so here's here's what the article said, a little smidgen of it. Trusting the universe is essentially a mindset shift. Your ego will say, but what if this way of thinking isn't true? And to that I say, what does it matter, even if it isn't? You can't control life anyway. Might as well delude yourself into happiness and joy while you're here. Who's winning, the skeptic who's miserable and living in fear every day, or the blissed out ignorant person? So in order to fully hand over the wheel to the universe, you need to be over in the passenger seat. It's much easier for the universe to give you what you want when you aren't fighting your own self and trying to control every second. So you get the idea, right? So so in this person's mind, the universe is is personal uh, and sovereign over their life. And the universe is powerful and controlling, and it's able to give things and to withhold things. And so surrender to it, work with it, and it'll, the universe will give you what you want in life and what you want for your life. Fight against it, and then it's going to withhold the things that you want. That's the idea. It's, it's really the very definition of idolatry. Uh, idols are simply created things. The universe is a created thing. And so idols demand sacrifices. And so uh, do what the universe is telling you to do. That's a sacrifice, right? You're sacrificing to the universe by doing what it wants you to do. And then the universe will give you what it wants. It's religious. It's idolatry, just like thousands of years ago. So the idea of an impersonal controlling force shows up everywhere in society. We tend to think of ourselves as modern and past all of that idolatry stuff. But it's with us today the same way, uh, in essence, as it was three or four thousand years ago. For instance, athletes, prime example, you wouldn't think that And I hate to admit this, the greatest basketball player ever, Michael Jordan, not a Laker. uh, You wouldn't think that he would be given over to this kind of stuff. Guy got talent for days and, you know, and, and all of that. But when he won the national championship with the University of North Carolina back in 1982, he, he came to believe that those powder blue shorts were good luck. And so here's what Michael Jordan did. He wore those shorts as he came into the NBA. He wore the powder blue shorts under his NBA shorts for every single game. Believing that they were somehow giving him luck, ability, success, whatever. In fact, little known piece of trivia, he started to have his shorts enlarged and it started the trend of the baggy shorts in the NBA because he didn't want his powder blue shorts sticking out so much. Perhaps the greatest goaltender in the history of the NHL, Patrick Waugh, Roy spelled Roy but Waugh is French. He would skate backwards before every game, skate backwards real fast towards the net and then flip around right at the last second before he got to the goal. And he believed in doing so, he was making the goal that he was going to be defending smaller in some strange mystical way. And during the game, he would talk to the goalpost, to the to the you know, the metal frame of the goal, and uh, he would thank them when, when a puck would hit the post and bounce off. He would, he would talk to it as though it was hearing him and so on. And so, so this religious kind of relationship that he had with the goal, with the hockey goal, is really what caused him to become known as St. Patrick, is because he was so religious in how he went about preparing for the game and so on. So is there some unseen controlling force that, that controls events and makes certain things happen, other things not? Can it be manipulated to, to give us what we want? If we just wear certain clothing or go through certain rituals, will that make things happen and come to us? You know, that kind of a thing. It's all very religious. It's all, it's all idolatry, really. Followers of Jesus aren't immune to this. Philip, Philip Methancton, Melanchthon, sorry, was a brilliant theologian, and he was one of the chief drivers of the Protestant Reformation. He was really Martin Luther's right-hand guy. And in many ways, Melanchthon was more brilliant than Luther was, but Melanchthon was a warrior, like a big-time warrior. And, uh, and, and so the Protestant Reformation, as you know, it was... Uh, you know, coming against the practices of the Roman Catholic Church and all of that. Well, the movement was in full bloom and people were rallying around these new teachings that were coming out of Luther and Melanchthon and others. And uh, this was dangerous stuff. So there was a lot of attempts at assassination and and a lot of intrigue going on and people were out to get these guys and Melanchthon being a warrior, he would always you know oftentimes come running in to Luther just with his hair on fire going Martin Martin what what's going to happen you're going to be arrested they're out to get you and what's going to happen to this movement of ours that we've been dreaming about and so on and Luther would say Let Philip cease to rule the world. You're not ruling the world, Philip. You see, Scripture presents Jesus Christ as the sovereign over the universe. The things that we can see and the things that we can't see. That he has absolute power over all of it. All things were created through Him, all things were created for Him, and all things are being upheld by Him. Therefore, fear and worry and panic are incompatible with our belief in His sovereignty. Fear and worry are the, are the fruit of believing that Jesus isn't sovereign over all things. Things are going wrong in my life. Apparently, there's no one behind the wheel right now. We can begin to feel and think, I better take control somehow. I've got to worry. That worry kind of gives us some kind of a sense of, you know, I'm, I'm engaged in helping fix this thing or whatever. But, but our sovereign king says to us, for instance, in Matthew 6.25, do not be anxious about your life. That's coming from the one... Who controls it all. Don't be anxious. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5:7, cast all your anxieties on him, the sovereign one, because he cares for you. The sovereign omnipotent Lord over all things seen and unseen, he cares for you and he wants to carry the, the weight. So let Greg cease to rule the world. You can put your own name in that phrase if you're a warrior. Jesus Christ is sovereign over all things. He's in complete control. Cast your cares, your anxieties upon him. You see him about 100 and plus years ago. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and grieves to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? Our precious Savior, He is still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. When we're weak and heavy laden, encumbered with a load of care, we should never be discouraged when we take it to the Lord in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit, what needless pain we bear. We should never be discouraged when we take it to the Lord in prayer. That's the idea. Well, in our passage, we have the Apostle Paul now in prison in Rome, and Epaphras, who got saved in Ephesus through Paul's ministry there. Remember, Paul was in Ephesus for three years on his third missionary journey, and uh, out of the ministry in uh, Ephesus came church plants. People would get saved in Ephesus and go off to their communities and begin to start churches and preach the gospel and so on. So Epaphras is likely the pastor of the Colossian church, at the very least, one of the prominent church leaders there in Colossae. And Colossae was a Uh, A small, insignificant town at this time. So Paul's writing to a small church in a small town. He didn't plant the church. As far as we know, he had never visited the church. But he's heard about the church. And he is simultaneously impressed by the church and concerned for the church. He's impressed, we, we kind of plowed on this last week, he was impressed by their, their love for the saints, their love for the big C church. They were church people, they loved the church. They, were, they felt privileged to be a part of the redeemed people of God around the world. And a part of the promotion of the gospel by which people are invited into the church. But Paul was concerned about their doctrinal drift Away from the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things. In our passage, we have Paul's prayer for the Colossian Christians. And Paul's prayers are often illuminating and they are always challenging. I mean, every time I kind of dig into one of Paul's prayers, it kind of exposes my praying for being, for being shallow in areas. So there's essentially three components uh, that I see in these four verses to Paul's prayer, and, and none of the three components uh, of, in Paul's prayer are for God to give the Colossians a good day. None of the three components are give them a comfortable life. None of the three components are for traveling mercies. No, no nothing necessarily wrong with, with asking those sorts of things But perhaps there are other things we can ask that get deeper and closer to the heart of God. There are some prayers, I believe, that are absolute bullseyes with God. That it's a yes, yes. I think Jesus, this is just my own speculation. He is the mediator, the one mediator mediator between us and God, the man Christ Jesus. So he mediates, he receives our prayers. And and I think Jesus takes and he he makes them acceptable. He he brings them to the Father. And we pray, uh, Lord, just give us a good day. And Jesus takes that prayer and says, okay, a good day. Good day. Well, that's a day that I work in your life. So I'm going to go ahead and bring some challenges to your life today. And and a good day is a day that you grow in your faith. And so, yeah, I'm going to give you a good day by bringing you some challenges. Or we ask for traveling mercies and the Lord goes, I'm going to go ahead and have you miss that flight. Because there's a conversation that I want you to have with somebody in the airport or the flat tire that causes you to miss an appointment that lines up timing that you never could do. You don't have the ability to do that stuff, only God does. So I'm gonna give you mercies in your travels by providentially ruling over your schedule, interrupting your plans, so that my plans can be accomplished. Paul's prayer, if we allow it, will deepen our prayers and help us to zero in on the heart of God, for, for ourselves and for each other. So three, three components this morning. Uh, number one, Paul prays for spiritual wisdom for the Christians at Colossae, and by extension, us here in the Magic Valley. Spiritual wisdom, verse 9. <clears throat> so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So so when you become a Christian, and, and maybe that'll happen for some of you this very day, When you become a Christian, you get everything you never knew you always wanted. It's the strangest thing. You didn't didn't realize that this this was the ache and the hunger of your soul. But then you get it, you receive Christ and you go, oh, this is what I've wanted all my life. You thought the meaning of life and satisfaction in life would be found in seeing your own will be done, getting what you want, your own dreams fulfilled and so on. And, and so the idea of surrendering our will to someone else to live for their pleasure, well, that's, that seems repugnant. I mean, that, that seems ludicrous, really. How can living for the pleasure of of another be anything other than some kind of slavery? I mean, now, of course, the answer, simple answer to that, it depends on who the other is. But I'll tell you what, if you live for and exist for the pleasure of your spouse or your boyfriend or your boss or your parent or your friend or even yourself, it's not going to go well eventually, guaranteed. There's one person, however, who claims that if you live for him and his pleasure, you will find what you never knew you always wanted. You will not only find the meaning of life, you, you will find life. This is what Jesus meant when he said in John 10:39, if you cling to your life, So, if you bend your life around your will, seeking your desire, fulfilling your dreams and your passions, if you cling to that, you're going to lose it. But if you will give up your life for me, you'll find it. So counterintuitive. The first component of Paul's prayer for the Colossian Christians and for us is that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will for us, his will. So this knowledge of his will will be comprised of two components, spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. So that happens, obviously, in the realm of the mind in the heart, our internal uh, environment. And so there's a lot of scripture that kind of take us to that understanding. Here's a probably the most famous one. Romans 12, two, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's the Greek word, metamorphos, right? The caterpillar to butterfly, the metamorphosis be transformed how by the renewing of your mind that now here's what happens when our minds are renewed that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect so the will of God filled with the knowledge of the will of God how does that happen through the renewing of our minds our minds are renewed we're not being squeezed into the world's mode the world's philosophies and 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 all of that kind of stuff we're being transformed by dwelling upon primarily Scripture, primarily. Transformation happens in the mind which results in understanding and discerning what the will of God is. Now, many Christians think of God's will uh, and guidance in, like it's a map, and, uh, or, or there's road signs along the way, and, and, and so on. Many Christians ask God for a sign, Lord, give me a sign. Um, or they think of the Bible as a, like, a, like a spiritual roadmap. And those, I mean, those metaphors are maybe a little bit true, but they fall short. In one of his books, J.I. Packer, who just, oh, a year, a little more, went to be with Jesus, great theologian. Um, he, he illustrated, you know, the knowledge of God's will this way. He said suppose you were in a foreign country in a foreign city in a foreign country and you wanted to get to a certain place in that city but you ha- you didn't have a map and uh, you didn't know how to get there so Uh, you see a local on the sidewalk, you pull over and you say, sir, um, I'm trying to get to such and such a place. Can you help me to get there? Can you show me the way to get there? Uh, And and so the guy says, okay, here's what you do. You go down two blocks and you make a left. You go for another five blocks and you make a right. When you get to the grocery store, Oh, I think eight or nine blocks after that, you'll go ahead and make a right there. Then you cross over a bridge, and about two or three minutes of this is going on. And the guy's going, of course, this is before GPS, right? And I can't, I can't remember all of that. It's way too complex. And so it dawns on the man giving the instructions. You know what? I've got to go in that direction today anyway. How about I get in with you? So now all of a sudden, the man driving the car isn't uh, being given guidance, he's been given a guide. Listen, discovering God's will in our life is relational more than it is informational. And so Elizabeth Elliot, uh, you know, she was for years a missionary in South America she wrote a book called A Slow and Certain Light. She illustrated it uh, uh, similarly, but a little bit different. And she writes about God's guidance in our lives. And she recounts the story of being in the jungles of South America. Two Americans show up, and they ask for a map to, uh, to get to a certain place in the jungle territory that they were in. And so Elizabeth Elliott said, listen, you don't need a map. You need a guide. And in her story, she tell, they... they didn't take her advice. They received the map and they took off. She never saw them again. She doesn't know if they made it or not. But her point was, God doesn't give us guidance so much as He guides us. And if you can, if you can get that, that God's will is less informational and more relational, It's going to help you, especially when you're gone. I don't know which way to go. Remember, Jesus is the way. He is the way. God's word isn't a map. It's a means of communing with and getting to know our Savior and our King. It's God's sanctifying tool for renewing our minds and transforming our lives. And so Paul alludes to this in our passage in uh, Colossians 1.9 again, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that or so as to walk in a manner worthy. So, so you're receiving from the Lord, you're communing with the Lord, and now you're walking in the center of his will. The decisions you're making, your desire is to please him, and you find yourself not going, Oh, God, should I go this way? Should I go that? Give me a sign. Give me a sign. No, it's Lord. I trust you. Lord, I'm with you. Lord, I lift this up to you. True knowledge of God in spiritualism understanding, will manifest in your walk, in your life. It'll make its way into your words, your attitudes, your actions, and your decisions, guaranteed. His will will be manifest. So Paul prays for spiritual wisdom, but secondly, he prays for spiritual power. Spiritual power, verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, For all endurance and patience with joy. So, you know, I love pressing into these prayers because they're surprising. So, so spiritual power. We want power. When I first became a Christian, I remember being warned on more than one occasion by well-meaning Christians to not pray for patience. Anybody ever been told that? Don't pray for patience. Okay, quite a few. Have any of you shared that advice? Go ahead and admit it. Sinful people, bad advice. (laughs) They told me, that they had made the mistake of praying for patience and it resulted in, in a litany of circumstances and, and people coming into their lives to test their patience. And I thought, whoa, because I'm a young Christian, I'm going, wow, thanks for telling me that. Thanks for the heads up. You know, don't underestimate or don't under any circumstances pray for patience. Got it. Check. Put that into my discipleship. Don't pray for patience. Well, well, <laughs> After reading the Bible and studying the Bible for a bit, I began to realize that, well, patience is like a really valuable thing. You know that saying, patience is a virtue? It is. It's a virtue. And yet, well, meaning Christians were trying to give me what they felt was like a a tip for newbies, right? Like, here's a hack for the Christian life. Don't pray for patience. But here we have Paul praying that the Colossian Christians would be strengthened with God's power, not so that they can preach a fire sermon or perform some crazy miracle, but so that they can have endurance and patience. I don't know about you, but I know quite a few people who were running the race, but they aren't running it anymore. They were, in the faith, active, serving God. They're not serving Him anymore. They didn't endure. They didn't have patience. They left the faith. Worldly philosophy saturated their minds so they can no longer see the supremacy of Christ over all things. I want endurance. I want patience. And so I'm asking God for power to endure, power to grow in patience. However you do that, God, in my life, however you grow that in me, go ahead and do it. And notice that when God empowers us to endure and to be patient, he gives us joy with it. Did you catch that in verse 11? Being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious night, might, for all endurance and patience, with joy. So it isn't just grueling uh, trials, trouble. Oh, I know I need this. I know God sent it, God endure it. No, it's, woo, Lord, you are at work in my life. And this is is a hard thing, but man, Lord, you are speaking to me. Your presence is with me. I am am standing on the promises of God, the work you've begun in me, you're going to complete. You're the sovereign over my life. I've got joy in the process. Paul prays for spiritual wisdom. And he prays also. What was it? What's my point? Somebody help me. Power. Thank you. (laughs) And lastly, he prays that the Colossians would be filled with spiritual gratitude. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you in the inheritance of the saints in life. Now, this isn't Paul saying, I'm giving thanks to the Father for you, although Paul does that. This is Paul praying for them that they would be continually giving thanks to the Father, primarily because they have an inheritance with the saints in life. Don't, don't be so blown away, Jesus said to the disciples, that you've gone out and cast out demons and, and, and you know, miracles have been done through you. And I'll, don't be so fired up about that. I tell you what you can be fired up about, that your name is written in the book of life. It's a source of continual gratitude. It ought to be. Well, Paul understood that not only is it the right that gratitude is, is ever on our lips for God, for giving us a share of the inheritance in the saints in light, but he knew that thankfulness is really the secret to a joyful life. And Paul talks about thankfulness a lot. You see, thankfulness is the soil in which joy thrives. Thankfulness is not something we're to engage in, in, in merely when times are good. We especially need to be thankful when times are not good. And it's when we face our own trials and tribulations that we, we, that we are most needful of carrying gratitude through those times. Why? because if we don't, we will succumb to a a dark, uh, thankless spirit and our joy will be robbed. And the, the impact of that trial will be in many ways negated. We'll get embittered about things, we'll get discouraged over things, we'll get caught up in petty grievances against people, we'll think the fight is against flesh and blood, all that stuff. We'll, we'll, we'll be sucked into because we're not being grateful. We're not practicing gratitude. Gratitude lifts us above the fray into an environment where joy just flourishes like a plant in the sunlight. My wife was pointing out to me the other day look at that plant in our house. Plants don't always do well in our house but there's a plant in the corner of the dining room. Look at that plant. It's happy. It's joyful. It's just sitting there going, woo! I don't know about those other, what they're so grumpy about. I feel good. Gratitude is the soil where joy, flourishes grows there's a lot of thermometer Christians who rise and fall with the temperature of the moment (laughs) you know they go up and down with the circumstances and there's always going to be a little bit of that right sometimes a circumstance can overtake us and it knocks us off balance for a minute but what do we do we seek the Lord and God sets our feet on the rock again. We know that the storms that, that you know, come against the rock, they're just gonna splash off, and we're gonna be fine. But there's thermometer Christians who rise and fall with their circumstances, they get bitter about all the bad stuff that happens to them, and so they're constantly unsatisfied with their life. And nothing makes them happy. And they they purposely make life miserable, not only for themselves, but but for those who have the the misfortune of being around them. And the bitter person becomes absorbed with the question of, why me? Why is this happening to me? They they embrace a victim mentality. And he or she feels that they've been shortchanged somehow, when in fact, thermostat Christians have gone through much more difficult kinds of things in life, and yet they will tell you that they are the most blessed and privileged people on the planet. They're the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego types. When they're in the fire, they discover a fourth like the Son of Man with them. They discover that, that the bad things that happen in their lives and to them in their lives are not meant to destroy them. Oh, they might be meant by the devil to destroy them, but in God's purposes, they're meant to grow them and to build them and to show that God is a very present help in a time of trouble, right? Psalm 46, very present. And so they praise Him through it. Paul and Silas in stocks, You know, chained up against the prison wall. What are they doing? Praising God. Joyful gratitude. A thermometer rises and falls with the environment. A thermostat controls the environment. When you decide that you're going to be thankful always for all things, That thankfulness is going to control the spiritual climate of your life. of every room you walk into, people are going to see something in you so powerful. You say, well, I'm not even a follower of Jesus and things haven't gone, been going well for me. What do I have to be thankful for? Well, at least this. God has allowed the frustration of this life to bring you to a place where maybe you're beginning to realize your need for Him. Is it possible that Jesus is the very one that you never knew you needed the whole time through your life? The Bible says He is. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that Paul's prayer um, would, would kind of soak in to us and that our prayers would begin to sound at least a little bit like his prayers, that we're praying less about superficial things and temporal things and more about eternal things less about bless this day more about grow me and help me Lord walk in your will in my life Lord empower me not to be able to impress people but to be able to endure and be patient with joy Lord, let gratitude be not something that happens just in high moments in life, but Lord, present in every moment, good and bad, so that our lives could become more steady and faithful, Lord, for you, less up and down with the moment that we're in, more steady, strong, stable rooted and grounded in you. Lord for those who have not come to the place where they've surrendered their will to yours. They've given up, taken their hands off the wheel of life and, and said, Lord, you take over. You be my sovereign. I've trusted in all kinds of stuff, the universe, the stars, the whatever. But Lord, I'm coming to believe that you are the sovereign for whom all things are created, by whom all things are created, and you sustain all things. And that you would think of me and desire me is an overwhelming thought. And yet, that's what the Bible says. In this moment of prayer, before we go to the table together, I want to give those of you who have yet to say yes to Jesus Christ and yes to God's offer of eternal life through faith in Christ. I want to give you an opportunity to say yes to Him now. And so if that's you, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Uh, The raising of a hand doesn't (laughs) do anything. What what all that's doing is alerting me that you're responding so I can pray for you and pray with you. But what's happening is happening between you and God. In the realm of the heart and mind. That's where God speaks to us, ministers to us transforms us, changes us. And so God will see your heart. He will see. And then in a moment, we're going to pray, like the Bible says, confessing Him as Lord. Hey, God bless you. Anybody else? Raise it up right now, and we'll pray together. All right. Thank you, Lord. Time to say yes to Jesus. God bless you back here. All right. Those of you who raised your hand, pray this prayer. Repeat it after me. Say, Lord Jesus. I believe in you that you are the king of kings the creator of all things who became a man and died on the cross for my sin and I believe that you rose from the dead and now I ask you to come into my life and to be my Savior. Be my Lord. I give you control. In your name I pray, amen.